0: So um, thank you, Lauren, for kind introduction. Um, I'm Hatsuki Aishima and I'm very happy to be back in St. Anthony's after graduating in 2011. I came back last time in 2012 for degree ceremony when this building was still not there. So yes, I, I didn't quite understand what Invest Corp Auditorium went when I saw the poster, but now I'm here and then I'm very happy to have all of you. So. Before I go into my paper, I want to sort of give you some overview of uh, what my project is about. So, um, the title of the book is Public Culture and Islam in Modern Egypt. And this is not the title that I initially intended, but the publisher, uh, my editor in Ivy Taurus, gave the title Public Culture and Islam in Modern Egypt. And then, throughout the way, throughout the time in which I worked on, my manuscript, I start to understand more about why uh, the editor thought my work is about public culture. So um, one of the main points of my work is that, uh, um, obviously that, you know, when people hear public sphere, and then especially this kind of theory that came about from the 1960s and so on and so, so forth, um, people think that, assume that when, the modern technologies introduced and society developed, and then gradually <coughs> the society would forget the religious traditions and move to secular um, direction. But uh, what my work introduces is that the public culture does not necessarily disc- exclude religious o- religiosity altogether, or they kind of include more like a secularized version of Islam and other religious traditions. and. Um, and just to give you an overview of all those who may not be familiar with the uh, um, uh, like introduction of media and uh, Islam in modern Egypt is that Egypt was one of the first countries in the Middle East to um, have print technology because of the Napoleon's expedition in 19, uh, 1798. And then the, the basically the printing press was just kind of came with uh, Napoleon's uh, ship. And then uh, later on, uh, um, the radio broadcast started in 1920s uh, with the sort of the British presence. So, and then what I want to say is that, of course, you know, that the public culture, public sphere existed in the Middle East before the introduction of print, right, by the French. Obviously there was like, you know, for instance, a typical uh, public culture, uh, the example given by Habermas is like, people sit at the coffee shop in Vienna, right? And then uh, obviously there were coffee in Ottoman Empire and also in Egypt, so people did sit around and have coffee and discuss uh, various uh, social matters to gossiping, gossiping about neighbors, right? But then what happens after the introduction of print media or like the radio is that the ways in which people relate to each other, the sense of connectedness change. And my work is about addressing how by, you know, people, how through this introduction of media, uh, whether about reading newspapers or listening to radio, or like, um, yeah, talking about uh, um, uh, media stars, right, after watching uh, like some TV soap opera, how, you know, these activities changes the ways in which the Egyptian uh, middle class or members of Egyptian public um, relate to each other and then um and then i do this through an uh, example of one egyptian intellectual called abdul halim mahmoud and then it's really okay that you never heard of abdul halim mahmoud before today because uh, he's he's famous but he's famous in his own way in egyptian context so he's a french trained scholar of sufism and then um he has written more than 60 titles on Islamic philosophy and Sufism. So, um, yeah, the Egyptian national press characterized his work as a, the founder of a, a father of modern Sufism in Egypt, right? And then also <laughs> called him like a Ghazali of 20th century by sort of reuniting the you know, Western sciences, social sciences, with uh, traditional <coughs> Islamic sciences. So uh, the question is that uh, you know whether Abdul-Hari Mahmoud is an intellectual or <laughs> intellectual in which way? Because uh, it's also the case in Egypt, but also you know, people outside of uh, Egypt associate intellectuals with kind of secular outlook or like talk about something unusual. <laughs> you have to be kind of original and individualistic in a way in a way to become like present yourself as an intellectual. So to, for Abdul Hadi Mahmoud, who is sort of you know, presenting himself as a religiously you know, oriented uh, intellectual, um, that is a kind of a question you know, that people would have whether he would qualify as an intellectual or thinker or a <laughs> scholar like Alim. So um, this is uh, the photo of Abdul Hadi Mahmoud from his younger days to sort of uh, towards end of his life, and this is all like a I think he, this was his passport photo or something that his uh, um, relatives pot- posted on uh, his website, yes? So at the beginning, you know, he, <laughs> he present himself as a um, kind of Europeanized sort of uh, modern man, basically. This is when he goes to France or so, yes? And then uh, towards the middle of his career at Azhar in 1961, when uh, Gamal Abdul Nasser uh, nationalized uh, Al-Azhar Mosque University, which is a kind of central religious institution in Egypt and also in Sunni Islamic world, um, Abdul Hai Mahmoud changes his dress code from uh, this sort of so-called Effendi style, <laughs> like a suit and tie, to what he calls a kind of traditional um, religious man's look, yes? So this is uh, the time that he probably changed. And then, uh, so... Most people nowadays know Abdul Hari Mahmud in this so-called Azhar look, so this kind of turban with uh, uh, the robe, kaftan. Yes? So that uh, for modern day people who only know Abdul Hari Mahmud in this Azhar look, he would be more or less like an alim or scholar, yes? A religious scholar, a man of religion, and would not think he's a, a musaqaf, the culture person or intellectual. So my book addresses this kind of uncomfortable un- <laughs> um, labels that people want to you know, put on Abdul-Hahim Mahmoud and discussions that I had with uh, my Egyptian friends while doing field work in Egypt. So um, just to sort of go, first I want to give an like, overview of the book. So I just said that like, Abdul-Hahim Mahmoud is a French trained scholar of a Sufism who served as Grand Imam of Azhar Mosque University under President Sadat. He was one of the first Asherite scholars to actively assert a consciously public role and a method of self-representation associated with newly developing communication technologies. For instance, in 1964, during the height of socialist era, Abdul-Halim Mahmoud contributed to the establishment of the Northern Quran radio station, which is dedicated to spreading Islamic knowledge to the pub- general public. He also had more than 60 books on Islamic philosophy and Sufism. Being fascinated with the potential of the mass media for representing their objects as both modern and authentic, he integrated them into his Sufi outreach activities in order to elevate the public image of Sufism from an archaic village custom to an authentic Islamic tradition. Even after his death in Nineteen seventy-eight, Abdul Khali Mahmoud continued to give spiritual guidance to his followers through various mediums, including dreams. Many Egyptians remember him as the radio star of the 1970s and continue to value his publications as a reassuring source of Islamic knowledge. So Public Culture in um, Islam in Modern Egypt is a book about Abdul Khali Mahmoud as well as how people of contemporary Egypt know about him or do not know about him. Yes, and he's a pivotal figure of the 1970s Egypt on a par with celebrities such as Umm Khulsum and Sheikh Shahrawi. So most, uh, almost every day, you know, abdul appeared in television, newspaper, radio, you know, like other celebrities of the 70s. Yet, when the fame of his contemporaries um, persists in the Egyptian public sphere, that of Abdul Khalim Mahmoud is circumscribed in a particular social circle. When an average Egyptian hears Abdul Khalim, they think of the singer and actor Abdul Khalim Hafiz, not Abdul Khalim Mahmoud. So, um, for instance, when I was writing a PhD in Cairo, and then my supervisor, Walter Ambrose, wrote a PhD. Um, report yes on every term that, that there were sometimes that he wrote like uh, Hatsuki is progressing her re- prog- her projects are progressing very well in Cairo she's writing about Abdul Halim Hafez and <laughs> his, his his dramatic serial which is produced now in Egypt or something and yeah so even somebody like Walter Ambrose <laughs> who's who's very very familiar with my work yes but it sort of slip in if you hear Abdul Halim. Then it must be half. It's not Mahmoud. So, yeah. So, so that's like a very good example. Yes, that uh, yeah, being water being a specialist of mass culture in Egypt. So yeah. So people know about Abdul Mahmoud, or they claim to know about him, or they might say they don't know what I'm t- what I'm talking about, right? But this whole encounter is a very important ethnographic part of my research, because his uh, Abdul Mahmoud's fame is locally embedded, and that's. A very important, you know, reason why, you know, that my work would uh, present some important aspects of Egyptian society. So, so yes, yeah, so even those who knew Abdul Hamid Mahmoud when I told them that I, I'm working on this figure, they were really amazed and wondered whether I came to know him through dreams, and but yet, you know, that I've been working on Abdul Hamid for. Now, like 16 years, but <laughs> he has never appeared in my dream so far, so maybe he's not happy with what I'm doing, um, although I'm quite seriously thinking about him all the time. So, but anyhow, that many of, I have understood from my research that many of his admirers are from educated middle class backgrounds who aspire to live the life of a cultured person. So, and these people employ work of Abdul Halim Mahmoud as an occasion to perform their eagerly cultivated pious and modern self so although economic conditions certainly affect one's lifestyle and social status defining the egyptian middle class according to their income is an arbitrary exercise since many people have two or three jobs at the same time in order to make a living so rather than rather i employ the term middle class as an aspirational category materialized through embodied practice triggered by the political of difference where consumption plays an important role. Their aspiration is bound up with the wish to live the life of a cultured person, which is the exact meaning of the key term which is usually translated as intellectual in English, a term that has become ubiquitous in the Egyptian public sphere ever since the colonial era. Such a romantic perception of culture as symbolic capital that is necessary to live a modern civilized life and for being up to date with on what is good and reasonable facilitates a positive sense of self-identification with the middle class irrespective of income. As Bourdieu in reminded us, social class is practiced through habitus and the judgment of taste. Displaying an appreciation or disapproval of certain cultural goods, including those of religious domain, play a key role in one's affiliation with the middle class. I approach a transversal sample of this cultured audience who seek metaphysical and spiritual justifications in parallel to an ideally, if not always literally, materially successful life. The term transversal designates designates my field strategy as consciously cutting through rigid distinction between the religious and the secular dimension of living as good Muslim in a highly cosmopolitan and urban city like Cairo. Aspiration to a morally sanctioned or at least Islamically compatible good life is a key component motivating audiences to potentially participate in the task of authenticating or disauthenticating Abdul-Hai Mahmoud's scholarship and public teaching. Michael Gilson suggested that some members of the Egyptian middle class who were fairly successful in their profession became attracted to Sufism in the 1960s as an attempt to frame their lives philosophically and spiritually. The bulk of Abdul-Halim Mahmoud's admirers are from this type of social background. They have BA's or even master's degree in various subjects which were instrumental in securing jobs. After hectic five or six day working weeks, they've turned to books, radio, and television for opportunity to be cultured. The sociological profile of cultured audience in educational terms generally includes access to higher education where so-called supportive culture is transmitted. I do not intend to suggest that university graduates are homogeneous in any empirical sense. The point is that similar to Nobel Elias's German middle class, at the level of public discourse, alimun, the educated of Egypt, are regarded as distinct from those who are non-educated in terms of their values, language, manners, and dress code. The process of authenticating scholarship in broader cultural terms through a composite-educated middle class public can only be assessed through a strategy of transversal penetration of multiple, often overlapping, life words. If class is an arbitrary construct that depends on the aspirational self-identification of social groups, then public is an even more sociologically abhorrent category. The idea of public is sustained by the hopes and desires of scattered actors who <coughs> imagine the shared values of, of a good cultural life nurtured by authentic public teaching and based on sound scholarship. Such public therefore is more accessible through a combination of ethnographic snapshots which may succeed in capturing the aspiration that nurtured that discussion, aspiration, appreciation, judgment, and critique than through a sociological survey and statistics. Surprisingly, perhaps, the main cleavage in the public process of the authentication and disauthentication of Abdulhai Mahmoud's scholarly credential was not between the secular and religious camps, but between a group of Egyptian Orientals of various disciplinary locations and an assortment of non-specialist musakafum, also including some academics. Public Islam seems to cater to the latter much more than to the former. So like, during the field work I met the I studied with some uh, Azhar professors of Azhar as well as uh, other <laughs> scholars of Cairo University and as well as like various um, other friends and then I was really surprised how the people who work on Islam like philosophy or sufism theology they are very critical of the works of Abdul hari Mahmoud and then some uh, speak to the extent that maybe he was, he was a, probably a liar or pseudo scholar, and I'm wasting time. Uh, you know, come, come, I came all the way to Egypt, and why are you working on such a you know rubbish topic? And <laughs> they tried to persuade me to work on something else. And then this, this was really a you know, big surprise for me to actually meet people who are so critical of somebody to some other people is really important venerated almost as a saint yes so um, yeah that's why i think there's a, you know abdul is a scholar but he's a scholar for the members of general public and he, can, he might not be a scholar for the people who work as professional scholar in the sense of work for has a position in the university or writing a phd thesis or I mean, aspiring to become uh, um, some have a writer you know, seriously working on Islamic subject, yes. So, um, yeah, this is what I mean by authenticating, disauthenticating the scholarship of Abdul Hai Mahmoud. and this is all like uh, I w- I frame it in my work as a kind of performance of a uh, being a middle class to talk <laughs> to be able to engage with this kind of uh, like this series kind of study subject like talking about Islamic philosophy or Sufism, and then be able to show that they they know this subject and they they know, they're aware of um, what are the main issues, and they can evaluate the work of somebody like Abdul-Hai Mahmoud. So, what is happening is that, so Abdul-Hai Mahmoud passed away in 1978, and then he, but but his works are still reprinted. And then he, they are, from time to time, There are like a featured articles of abdul Mahmoud mahmoud in newspapers or magazines and so on and so forth. And then, uh, um, so the fir- first sort of main <laughs> featured article came out, surprisingly, uh, from the, in a magazine called Al-Ertisam. And then, I, I don't know if you know this, but el ertisam is a, a Muslim Brotherhood magazine and then it, it doesn't exist anymore, but anyhow, it was uh, this is the 70s when yeah, they were about able to publish something like that. And then, uh, so Abdul-Hai Mahmud's article, and then his sort of biography appears uh, first in Ali-i and then this uh, article, the what is written this article gets reproduced in, <laughs> in a series of other um, works, and then uh, so created some kind of aura that he is this sort of the very important uh, scholar, you know, that you can credit him like a Ghazali of 20th century. And then uh, recently, you know, more recently in 2008, um, there was a Ramadan TV serial produced by Egyptian national television and then uh, I was very surprised when it came out, it had a title that Al-Arif Billah, Al-Imam Abdul-Halim Mahmoud, the knower of God, Imam Abdul-Halim Mahmoud, and th- this is a uh, broadcast on national television that uh, some, some, you know, from, from being a scholar to, to now he uh, like has a status almost like a saint, yes, that, uh, he's an artist, that he knows the truth of God. So I'm looking at uh, this uh, sort of metamorphosis of his uh, legend or the fame, you know, after his death and then how this is, uh, has changed and also been reproduced and what, what are the main tropes that appear in this discourse. Yes. So uh, during the research, I uh, went to um, talk to uh, the people who knew about abdul Hari Mahmoud. And this is a photo with, of me with uh, his son. And we were attending the mall the, the annual birthday festival of Abdul-Halim Mahmoud. And the son was very happy that I was there. So yes, I, so I met several people like that who knew about Abdul-Halim Mahmoud or who, who, are, who claimed to be the fans of Abdul-Halim Mahmoud. Or yeah, I met the kind of re- his readership. So this is when I went to Algeria uh, for other reasons, <laughs> very randomly, I, I was invited to a, a home of an uh, um, uh, uh, Algerian uh, Algerian ulama association's um, member, and then uh, he uh, he showed me that he has some books of Abdul hari Mahmoud. So this is yeah, it's quite uh, interesting to see how like his books travel all around <laughs> and who are the kind of the, the main, like, so what is the sociological background of the people who kind of think his work is important or not important. And then uh, this, this is a photo of uh, um, me posing in Abdul Harim Mahmoud's library. So he, um, after he died, uh, his uh, um, son collected his books and then put them in a library, created a library in his native village. And I don't know if you can see, but there's a pigeon yes sitting there <laughs> <laughs> so, so so this is a, I guess like what I mean by the kind of social life of text, yes, so, so text is obviously has an author and it produce, but then it, it, the text has an afterlife, yes, so when, when it acquires readers or not acquire reader, but then um it's quite important to sort of see this material aspect of ideas so uh, the, this this um Abduhai Mahmoud collected these books and then, uh, but then he, there was nobody to use them, yes, in this his native village. So they are kind of locked up in this uh, mosque. So um, yeah, there's some pigeons started living there when, when I visited. <laughs> and then, uh, but uh, I think his family didn't really mind me taking photos with pigeons. They actually wanted me to take photos with pigeons, so. I kind of thought about uh, what, is, what is the legacy that, on one hand, you know, when people who don't know about Abdul Harim Mahmud personally venerate him like a saint, and then you see meet the family, and they, of course they care about their uncle or you know grandfather, or whatever, but yes, they kind of have very kind of careless approach to his material possessions. So, but anyhow, this is uh, what I mean. like kind like of ethnographic approach to modern Islamic thought. Or in a way to try to trace the kind of material aspect, the kind of corporeal side of ideas. So ideas are obviously kind of something abstract and verbal, yes? But then some of these uh, ideas may manifest in the ways in which the objects are handled or um, reproduced after life. So uh, one important point that I make in my in my book is this sort of, uh, you know, what, what, who, who's, you know, how do you assess Abdul-Hair Mahmoud's work? Yes, and then uh, what does it mean that he, Abdul-Hair Mahmoud's work is original if we are to look at him as a subject of uh, intellectual history? Because intellectual history is very much concerned, <laughs> obviously, even if you say intellectual history, that you have to think about what is original, unique in this person's work. And then this is, is really difficult when you look at the uh, work of this kind of public intellectuals because public intellectuals may not be concerned with uh, you know pre- presenting kind of unique ideas in relation to scholarly history, but it's more want to write what the maybe public is concerned. Yes, so um, this was a a really important issue for me, especially at the beginning of my research because. Uh, um, I didn't encounter Abdul Hay Mahmoud through dream, but uh, I encountered him through uh, my former supervisor at Kyoto University, who uh, actually was in Egypt while Abdul Hay Mahmoud was a grand imam at her mosque university. So uh, he he's Japanese, but he was really a fan of Abdul Hay Mahmoud, and uh, he thought that uh, you know, when I said I want to work on modern intellectual, not kind of classical, but contemporary intellectual from the Middle East, he thought Abdul Halim Mahmoud is a very important subject. But then what happened is that when, when I started reading his books, yes, uh, it's not written in a difficult language. You can read, but there's nothing interesting in it. <laughs> so it was very painful going through the text. And to, uh, I, yes, I trained in, uh, my first degree was in philosophy so I'm trained in reading difficult things, and I, I have read like Ibn Arabi and uh, uh, um, Abu Hamid Ghazali, these kind of classical sources as well, but then the Abdul Khali Mahmoud work is not, not like that. <laughs> it's very straightforward, but they, he just addresses what we know about Islam, like five pillars of Islam, like praying is important, and fasting is important, and so on and so forth. So uh, that's why I thought it's really important that I actually go to Egypt and meet the people who like to read his work, yes? (laughs) Because if I just read this work in Oxford by myself, um, then I would probably not be able to address (laughs) why this person could be important for modern Egyptian history. And then obviously you know that the, um, some people might be concerned that you go to Egypt and talk to people but t- people may lie to me, right? Or uh, what, what is the kind of credential? What kind of credential people just have? And by talking to Egyptians they will tell me the truth. And But that is not the issue fortunately in anthropology because everything can be you know, understood, framed as ethnographic experience. So that's why um, I decided to go to Egypt and then um, I organized more or less like a something like a tutorial with my Egyptian friends uh, or like teachers, so that we would have an opportunity to actually go through the text uh, with with them, and then discuss you know what what, this, what they like about or what they don't like about or yeah and then uh, yes this uh, and then I recorded, you know as much as and I did, do really appreciate uh, all my friends and teachers' viewpoint whether they are negative or positive and they shared with me on Abdul-Hai Mahmoud's work. And then um, at the end what I learned is that uh, obviously, you know, they, these Egyptians I met, they see something unique in Abdul-Hai Mahmoud's work. They say, they, they, some of them even say that when they listen to the radio recording of Abdul-Hai Mahmoud just by listening, they can see it must be Abdul to talking. I don't know whether it's true or wrong, but you know, but they they see that they and then uh the, and then sometimes like it's very kind of this a uh, very elevated talk about Islamic philosophy also when to me it might sound like just mundane talk about islam so and then uh, so at the end, I thought okay, it's really for them this is a uh. They, on one hand, they do appreciate Abdul Hamid Mahmoud, and they can see the originality. At the same time, they, they, what is important for them is to hear what is correct about Islam. Yes, <laughs> obviously, Abdul Hamid Mahmoud will say the lie. But the, the, there are so many programs on Islam, so many books on Islam produced on day-to-day basis in places like Egypt. Yes. So it is very difficult to see you know, which one is correct or not correct, or which is more contrastworthy, reassuring. Yes. And then for them, uh, uh, for not all of them, but for some, some Egyptians, they feel that uh, the work of Abdul Hari Mahmoud is really uh, Sahih, so it's very correct and sound. And then, uh, so I can't obviously introduce uh, all, the, all the details of how they feel something is correct. But uh, that is a really important point for Egyptian public. So they do see Abdul-Hai Mahmoud as an intellectual in a sense of the, the person, public personality who present them a model, yes, about certain ideas of lifestyle or personality. And then, but they are not looking for intellectual who uh, sort of uh, deviate from a common sense or uh, mainstream values. They look at Abdul Mahmoud, They value Abdul Mahmoud because of what they think as a kind of correct presentation uh, of Islam. And then obviously, there's many ways of looking at Islam. But then for the Egyptian middle class who are, uh, are currently in a kind of precarious situation, um, for them it's quite important to have this cultural capital in a sense, that it's not a kind of capital in a sense of kind of money. The financial oriented, but to have this uh, value or of, of uh, which may not lead to financial uh, financial growth of your your lifestyle, but then sort of spiritually, intellectually, that they are different from a lower social lower social strata, but they can say that they are middle class because they can speak and talk so in certain manner and a speak about the important subject like Islamic philosophy, Sufism. literature and so on and so forth. So I'll stop here maybe